the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's our final look at the book of Job. Chapter 42 is where we find ourselves today. Join us and be encouraged in the hope that God extends to us on the other side of trials and tribulations. The ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose, we welcome you to Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, who once again returns us to the book of Job. It is our final excursion through Job as we look one last time at chapter 42 and the end of Job's troubles, providing us real encouragement, knowing that our troubles don't go on forever, and there is purpose and meaning, and there is an end. With more, once again, Pastor Gary Wagner with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Now also in verse 10 it says, The Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 2, and then look at our text today, you see that his sheep are doubled, his camels are doubled, his oxen are doubled, his she-asses are doubled. God doubles everything. Was God bound to restore Job's outward prosperity? No, of course not. But at the same time, listen closely, no one ever served God or suffered for God for nothing. He will reward his servants. Now, granted, that humbles his true servants. It doesn't make them beat their chest or demand a certain level of remuneration. If anything, it leaves them humbled. But from God's side of it, remember what Jesus said. Peter said, Lord, we have given up everything to follow you. What are we going to receive? And Jesus might have looked at him kind of sideways when he asked that. And he said, well, Peter, those who have served me have lost farms and land and even their lives, but they are going to receive a hundredfold. This is a powerful, powerful underlining dynamic of Scripture, this idea of reward. Some people in the church are not comfortable with this. It's like that would be a sub-biblical or a base motive to serve God for the reward. But the problem is, God puts this in front of us in his word, beloved. He's the one who holds out to us glory and honor. Well done, good and faithful servant. I'm going to wipe away your tears. Why do we need this promise of reward? And how is it connected to earthly prosperity? Well, remember something from the Old Testament. They didn't see as clearly as we now see that our true riches are in heaven. 
So God oftentimes, under material prosperity, showed them, pointed them to the heavenly blessings that were to come and encourage them to aspire for the true riches in heaven. But understand, among the faithful, they don't confuse this. Job again nowhere prayed to be rich. Job simply prayed to be restored to fellowship with God. So I don't think we should look at this as this doubling as some kind of a formula for all of God's people. Because now that God has come, we realize 2 Corinthians 1.21. Listen, we already possess everything in Christ. I know it's hard to see. A lot of times believers are not the richest, the best looking, the most talented, the most respected even. We bear the reproach of Christ, but we need to remember who we are in Him. Paul says this life, the life to come, past, future, earth, heaven, everything belongs to you. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. So you see, we've got this double dynamic working here. On the one hand, we see more clearly that Christ has opened up heaven for us, but on the other hand... We don't have it yet. So we wait. And we have to endure and be patient. But the promise of the reward is a motivation. And it also settles us. I mean, this just strikes at the American way. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 8, Having food, clothing therewith, be content. But wait a minute. I need to know where my food and clothing are coming from for the next 90 days at least. I need to know where the money is going to come to pay my bills for the next five years, the next 10 years. My friends, that is an idolatrous way of thinking. God says, I feed you from my pantry every day and I want you coming to my pantry I want you praying, Father, give me this day my daily bread. So that if we just have a little bit, then that should teach us contentment and sets our attention and affections on things above. But as but if as many as for many of us, I think comparatively in terms of the world population, probably all of us here today, if God gives us more than we need. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 7.31? Use the world, but don't abuse it. In other words, don't set your hope on it ever. Don't let it lull you to sleep. Now I ask, does it have to? No, wealth doesn't have to. The love of money is the root of all evil, but wealth itself is a great blessing from God and used wisely. It is one of his gifts. We see that in Romans chapter 12. We need to remember that the Lord will wean us off of worldliness. And he will have us set our affections up where Christ is. Don't ever forget, your reward is coming. God gave Job a taste of it in giving him double. But we know heaven is open through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, if you have been risen with Christ, Colossians 4.1... Seek those things which are above. Set your affections on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Beloved, what is coming 
for us is wonderful. Wiping away the tears and serving God and loving Him in His presence forever without sin. Well, in verses 11 and 12, Job's family comes for a visit. And it's interesting, or it should be. The obvious question is, uh, where have you been? But I think we have to face that oftentimes our family is unable to cope with afflictions that we and other family members may be going through. Sometimes there's fear. There's also sometimes shame. Lots of times we're just uncomfortable with people who are suffering or sick or crying. I mean, Job, just curse God and die. Just be done with it. You know, there's an interesting Proverbs, Proverbs 14.2 that says, The soul knows its own grief and the heart knows its own bitterness. And sometimes we look to our families and even to the family of Christ to provide a level of comfort and understanding that really only God can give. Don't we see that in Job's three friends here? At some level, they were believers, but they couldn't comfort him at all. His family couldn't seem to comfort him. They chose, apparently, to stay away while all of this was going on. I think one practical thing we do learn from this is we need to learn to weep with those who are weeping. And yeah, it may be uncomfortable for us at times. That's why it is really good to take your children to nursing homes so that they can see the elderly in their sufferings. And as much as you can take care of older parents and grandparents, because we don't need to lead this insular life where the first funeral we attend is when we're 43 years old. We need to go to them when we are 5 and 7 and 11 and 15. So we can learn life isn't all games and blips on screens. Life is serious, and there is suffering in this world. And we must not allow our comfort to grow cold under our discomfort with having to weep with those who are hurting. And by the way, I think it would be a good idea for some of you to take your, parent, your children to visit Livio Benaldi, and I'm certain it would be a great comfort for him. What is a good way to gain a tender heart when we do see people suffering? Well, how can I say it? When we see a brother or a sister in Christ or a family member suffering with cancer, we ought to take it upon ourselves and think, well, I have cancer too. And not in some kind of silly manner. No, when one member suffers, all the members suffer with him or her. Paul said in Hebrews, <clears throat> the same thing about the persecuted church. He said, you think of yourself as bound with them. When we have brothers and sisters being tortured for their faith in Christ, put yourself in their place and suffer with them because the suffering of one, just like we should share the joys, is the sufferings of us all. Don't be oblivious to our brethren around the world. Pray for them. You know, when you're younger, you want to kind of herd up with the strong and the good-looking, and that's understandable. 
But those of us who are way, way past that, we understand why we may not be the best company any longer. But it's also good when you're young and strong to be with those who are older and weaker so that you can remember your creator in the days of your youth. And also remember, your muscles are not going to always be topped. My back is already starting to curve. And one day, so will yours. You're not always going to, hey, let's just go on a five-mile hike today and then off you go. It's very important for us to gain a sympathetic heart. Job's family, for whatever reason, just couldn't deal with Job's trouble. In fact, his family kind of holds awake. When I was reading through our text and preparing the sermon, I thought, guys, aren't you just a little bit late? The Lord's already restored Job. Now, granted, his wounds are probably still fresh. And this happened just over a period of a couple of weeks, so the wounds are fresh. So we should never, never say to someone who is weeping, hey, just move on, get over it. That's a hard, cold heart. But that is, or it seems to be, the way of American grief. Hey, we only have paid for the funeral home for just three hours. The crying's over with. Let's go see a movie. That is how we tend to deal with grief. But it's very cold-hearted, and it shows a deep selfishness. Now, the family does something very interesting in verse 11. Right in the middle, they consoled him and comforted him over all of the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Now, two things are interesting to me in this verse. And I believe they're worth being brought out. One, they literally recognized that the Lord had done this to Job. Which shows they had a better theology than a lot of us do today. And two, maybe they didn't quite understand that this wasn't really evil. Now the Lord evil here in Hebrew can mean distress, calamity. And I think that's the way it should be translated But those bad things turned out for Job to be what? To be good things. At the moment, he couldn't see this. But remember, Scripture, everywhere teaches men mean it for evil. God means it for good. Not once in a while. Always, my friends. Say your husband speaks harshly to you, neglects you. Remember, he may mean it for evil, but somehow God means it for good. When your boss yells at you or curses at you, men mean it for evil. But God means it for good. Remember, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. When they saw the Lord raise Job up from the dust, a broken, scabbed, covered man weeping. We can only imagine what he looked like. But they would always remember, right? God is the one who raises men up. Boy, isn't that encouraging? There are all kinds of fear in our land. This is happening and that's happening. We're told, put your money here to to protect it or put your money over there. Well, what if I don't have any money to put anywhere? All of these matters can be so agitating. 
Isn't it encouraging that God, God doesn't get his provision orders for us from Wall Street? Because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he gives to some and he takes away from others. He sets the poor and makes them princes in the land. That's what he did with Job. He makes the brazen woman a keeper of children. The atheism of our culture is very deep. It's not just men won't say Jesus in public. It is a deep underlying denial of our total dependence on God for prosperity. Oh, we don't need him. What we need is to work hard and to be wise and find the right admirer and everything will be great. Now, I'm not against those things, obviously. But behind those, are we really trusting ourselves or are we trusting the Lord? Now, we see Job is given 10 more children in verse 13. Now, interestingly, in a very patriarchal age, the son's names are not mentioned in our text. Did you notice that? The daughter's names are. And first is Jemima, which in Hebrew means day by day, which is an interesting name for Job to give his first daughter. Maybe it's a testimony to that's how I am living. I'm living day to day now, trusting the Lord. He names his second daughter Keziah, which is from Cassia, a spice. Maybe it is a testimony that the Lord has returned him to a sweet aroma and the desire for a new life. The third name, which is really a mouthful for most Americans, Karen Hapak, which means painted eyes or dark eyes. Maybe her eyes were very dark and they were large, but the main point is the daughters were mentioned and not the sons. And notice verse 15. And in all the land there were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brethren. Now the daughters of Zelophehad in Numbers 36, Joseph said, you can give them an inheritance because there were no sons. But in our text, there are sons. That's very interesting. Job's daughters were quite beautiful, and I'm assuming that they were also a virtuous because Job would not have rewarded vanity, and he treats them with great dignity. I think there is a lesson here for us, that we need to make sure we train our daughters well, that we don't treat them as just something ornamental. They need to have their minds trained just as our sons do. They need to have their futures taken care of. They need to be given a hope and a sense of purpose, a, a sense of usefulness. And Job was not diminutive of women. He treated, him, he treated them here as equal to his sons. Well, Job lives a long and happy life, verses 16 and 17. The traditional view is that when Job's trials happened, he was probably about 70 years old. Now, how do we know this? Well, it's really just a guess based on the number of children and when men normally had children in that age. And by the way, when we add 70 to 140 years that he lived after all of this, we have 210 years. This would put him right in the middle 
when the number of years of life began to decline, or right about the time of Nahor, and a little bit earlier than Abraham's family. Job lived a long life. Was he scarred by what had happened? Maybe. But it had been a bitter time. Of course, he wouldn't be afflicted like we wouldn't be afflicted like Job was, and it not leave some marks on us or at least I know on myself. What are some of the marks that may have been left on Job? Well, he never forgot. He was restored only through humility, only by humbling himself under God's hand. Like Job, we need to stop debating. We need to stop complaining. Stop trying to figure out what God is doing with us. Just humble ourselves under his hand and trust his love for us. I dare say that things that were important to Job in the past were perhaps much less now. What did Job learn about his wealth? It's just a puff of smoke. What did he even learn about his closest family relationships? Again, a puff of smoke. They can go away in a heartbeat in God's providence. Now, this, do, this didn't make Job cynical. It made him meek. Maybe sometimes your thoughts start running to, well, my family could be hurt in a car accident, maybe even killed, and we start having fears. Something happens to someone and we think, man, I could be struck down in the prime of my life as well. Now, that can either make us fretful or it can make us meek. And it did make Job meek. Job realized, my life is really in the hands of the Lord completely. So what flows from that? Trust, my friends. Since my father loves me, and since no evil will happen to me, unless God allows it, do you believe that? Do you believe that? And since God has all power as We uh, saw in Leviathan and in the stars and the other animals, the seas, the weather. And since he owns everything, what is my response to be to him? I've got to trust him. I need to be humbled. I, I need to trust him. He's going to take care of me and I need to live for his praise and his glory. That's it. So as we conclude Job, I commend to you, as James said, the patience of Job. You might be thinking, was Job really patient? In God's eyes, he was. Because Job's loss of things wasn't the worst thing he was experiencing. He didn't know Satan was behind it all. He didn't know that he had become a focal point of the contest between God and Satan. Not there really could be a contest, but I'm sure you get the point. Satan challenged God. God said, look at my servant Job. And suddenly, boom, hell breaks loose on Job. Job was never aware of this, but he felt it. And yes, through it all, he was patient. The church today may be just the kind of focal point, the faithful church in this land and in other lands. Modernism, postmodernism, globalism, nationalism, all of these things are fierce enemies of God. 
And what is God's little city in the highs of the world? The church. The church is sifted. And she looks small and she's depressed and irrelevant. But God says, that is my focal point. I am building my church through my son and the gates of hell shall not even prevail against it. So guess what? You and I are caught up in this. You are, your family, your life, your afflictions, your troubles, your confusion. We are all caught up in this. So what do we need to remember? God is conforming me into the image of his son. Sometimes the fires are going to be hot. Sometimes I'm going to feel like I'm being suffocated under the hand of God. So what do I need to do? I need to run to him, trust in him, and fall into his arms. Beloved, cast your care upon him. For he very much cares for you. And he has set his love firmly upon you. Well, that's all the time we have today. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. If you'd like to review today's broadcast, we would invite you to contact us for a copy of the program. They're available for just $5. Mention today's date and we'll send a CD your way. Here's where to write to us. PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. That's in Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Again, that's PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. Los Gatos, California, 95032 is that address. Our phone number, if you'd rather call, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website is reformedheritage.org, and if you'd like to join us for worship, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. We meet at the Lone Hill Church on 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions at our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, call 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together as we continue our studies in God's Word. Until then, may Christ be your abounding grace. Amen.